You know, um, you know, some of you know that we, or maybe everybody here knows by now, we, some of us go to this seminary over here. used to be in Brandon. Now it's in Bradenton. And uh, when we started there, uh, we were asked for, uh, char- or for references. We had to get people to give character references to, uh, to, to uh, you know, to talk about the, the kind of character that we had, and that was a scary proposition. I almost quit right then and there. And uh, these people had to evaluate our character on these forms, and uh, they had to answer hard questions about how we really were. Most people we gave the references to were family, uh, members or friends, so they weren't as hard on us, I, I imagine, as they could have been. They probably backed off a little bit and were gracious to us because if they would have really told the truth, we would have been hammered probably. They had a, a grading scale. You know, they graded you on, on different aspects of your character. I'm sorry to use the word aspects. I'm not supposed to use that word. From one to five, they graded us. Uh, you know, one is, uh, five I think was the best, and one was the worst, and everything in between. And so they, they were given these, these forms. And then if that wasn't intimidating enough, we were sent forms ourselves to evaluate ourselves. So I have this form in front of me that's asked me, how is my speech? How do I talk to people? Well, I'm kind of a wise guy, you know, normally. So I, I, I didn't know how to answer the questions. Is, is my speech abusive was one of the questions. Uh, one of the questions was, am I greedy or materialistic? Uh, do I provide spiritual leadership to my family? <laughs> Man, how do I answer these questions? Do I give myself a five in all these? Uh, do I give myself a one, the worst, and they say, oh, this guy's horrible? How do, you, how do you, do you give yourself a three, throw yourself in the middle somewhere? And, and then even then, when I'm evaluating myself, my judgment is skewed. I mean, we don't have perfect judgment about ourselves, right? Somewhat skewed, no doubt. And they say, list your strengths and weaknesses. Well, what do I list? Do I say I have several strengths, and does that really show pride? Do I major more on my weaknesses, of which there are many? Or, or what do you do? So, uh, you know, those kind, of, those kind of things bother me. I wonder, can this really be accurate? I don't think any of us could be 100% accurate on those kind of answers, by the way. We've still got to deal with our old, old nature, and only God knows our hearts, right? Ultimately, he only knows how we really, really are. Your family members are probably going to be kind to you, but God knows how we really are. But that's man evaluating his own nature. What if God were to evaluate himself? What if God were to uh, characterize himself? What would he say about himself? Well, we have that answer in Exodus chapter 34. Um, and I can assure you that when God evaluates himself, it's completely accurate. It's exactly right. There's no skewed answer given. Uh, he has no weaknesses, by the way, and God, has no, God only has strengths. And so everything he says is accurate. He's not man, but he's almighty God. Turn to Exodus chapter 33 first before we go to 34. And you'll recall that Moses had gone to Mount Sinai where he had received the Ten Commandments. And then he came down after a long period of time on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. Came down. And what did he see? He saw people, the people of Israel had made an idol, a golden calf. And he's horrified to see this. And, and so as a result of that, in that chapter it says 3,000 people died. Uh, you go to, that was chapter 32, by the way. Chapter 33 continues to tell us about the Lord's displeasure with the people of Israel. He says in that chapter, you know what? I've had it with you people. My, I'm going to send my angel with you, or I'm going to send an angel with you, rather, 
on your journey through the wilderness, but I, my presence is not going to go with you. I'm not going with you. I'll leave it up to an angel to do this. And there's a big discussion about that in that chapter. Well, Moses is shocked by this news because he wants the Lord to be with them. And he petitions the Lord uh, in, in, this, in this chapter. And let's begin reading in chapter 33, verse 12. Verses 12 through 16, we'll start with that. It says here, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Lord, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. See that phrase? Whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also favored, you found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, my presence shall go with you. There it is again. God says, all right, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Verse 15. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. If you're not going to go with us, Lord, I don't want to go. Verse 16. For how then can it be told, known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord, it's clear what Moses wants here. He wants God's presence, right? And the Lord relieves Moses' fears and says, all right, Moses, I'm, I'm going to go with you. Don't worry about it. Now look at verses 17 and 18. It says, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray, I pray you, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And that's the request that Moses makes here. Show me your glory, Lord. I want to know you. The word glory here, uh, the basic meaning is to be heavy or weighty. Normally, it's used in a figurative sense. It's uh, the concept of a weighty person in society or someone who carries weight or someone who's honorable or impressive or worthy of praise. That's the idea here. And obviously, God is that one. And here it refers, refers to the splendor of God's glorious presence. Moses is asking God, Lord, I want to see you in all your fullness and all your glory. That's quite the request. It's an amazing request. Now, previously, Moses had, ex had experienced this unique relationship with God anyway, right? The Lord had appeared to him in a blazing bush in, in Exodus 3 when he called him. He'd seen that. Uh, in Exodus 24, Moses and 70 elders of Israel had seen God, it says they saw the God of Israel in Exodus 24. Exactly what that means is not fully explained, but they saw him in some measure, not in the fullness of, of his uh, glory, no doubt. Exodus 33:11 says the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so Moses had this intimate relationship with God, whatever all that means. Once again, it indicates that Moses was close with God, though. But in the present context, Moses wants to go beyond any of those other former revelations. And this time he says, show me your glory. He says, I want to know you, Lord, in all your glory. And Moses needed encouragement. They'd just been through this disaster of this golden calf being made. And Moses needed the assurance, reassurance and encouragement from God. You see how he's over and over again in this chapter, he's, Lord, please go with us. You said I found favor in your, favor in your sight. Have I found favor in your sight? The Lord says, yes, you have, and it goes back and forth. So he wants reassurance from God for himself and to lead the people of Israel. And if we are to lead 
the people uh, of God and help people of God, we ourselves need to know the glory of God, right? We need to get a glimpse of his glory, as Mike constantly says. We need to know God intimately. Some of you may know D.A. Carson, the author. He wrote a book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And in that book, he asked this question, what is the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? What is the, if I were to ask you that, what would you think? What is the most urgent need in the church in the Western world today? Well, Carson goes on to talk about several urgent needs. He says we need moral purity. We need financial integrity. We need discipleship in our churches in the West. But though these are urgent, they're not the most urgent need. And Carson says the one thing we need more than anything else is this. In, the, in, the Western, in Western, Christendom, Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And that's what he says is the most urgent need. And in the following verses here, uh, we see Moses getting a glimpse of God's glory. And we need a glimpse of his glory also if we're to serve him as we should. So tonight we want to see three stages in the revealing of the glory of the Lord to Moses. The first stage, the preparation for the Lord's glory. Uh, before the Lord revealed himself to Moses, he wanted him to be properly prepared. And so he gives him some instructions. Moses is instructed in chapter 34, verses 1 to 3. Uh, let's read those verses. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. I will write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not gra graze in front of that mountain. And so Moses is instructed here. First of all, he's instructed concerning the broken tablets. And we're going to see that these broken tablets show us and reveal to us two truths that are going to be found in this passage here. First of all, they reveal the truth that uh, that Moses is a, is a zealous man for God. He's a man of zeal. Now let's go back and consider this again. In Exodus 24, Moses, we said earlier, had to go get the Ten Commandments from God, right? He goes to Mount Sinai, and he spent 40 days and nights there, as we said earlier. But apparently that was too long for Israel because in chapter 32, they assembled themselves, the people do, before Aaron, and they said, look, what's happened to Moses? Where's he at? We don't even know what's happened to him. Come, make us a God who will go before us. For as for this Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. Where's he gone? We haven't seen this guy in a long time now. So make us an idol. And they do. They make a golden calf, and they begin to worship that calf. They, they engage in idolatry. Let's pick up that narrative. Look at chapter 32, verse 15. Chapter 32, verse 15, it says here, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. He just, he's just received these, test, these tablets from God. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work. The writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is sound of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of the cry of, of triumph. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. We're told here that Moses' anger burned 
when he saw this idolatry. By the way, the same phrase is used in verse 10 of that same chapter. It talks about God's anger burning. So what Moses experienced was similar to what God experienced. And, and, and uh, <clears throat> this anger demonstrated Moses' righteous indignation. He didn't just lose his temper when he saw the calf and get mad and lose his temper and throw the tablets down. No, he was righteously indignant for the glory of God because he was a man of zeal for God. And in his zeal, he shattered the commandments. And notice the words. Look at the words it says here. He threw the tablets from his hand. He shattered them. He didn't accidentally drop the tablets. He shattered them on purpose. These are the ten commandments that God just gave him. With the writing of God, we just read that a minute ago. He deliberately shatters them. Those are strong words. They're deliberate actions to show that Moses is zealous for the Lord. Now look over in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses gives an account of this himself later on, looking back. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 9, 15. He says there, in recounting this incident, Moses said, So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands, and I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God, you had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. Same word, actually, smashed as it was shattered earlier. I fell down before the Lord as at the first, 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. So Moses smashes the commandments in full view of the people so they can see that he is angry, that God is angry, that this is righteous anger. They were witnesses firsthand of the anger of Moses here. You know what? Moses shows us what happens when a man spends a lot of time with God. He takes on the character of God. He starts thinking like God. He starts having this zeal uh, for God. He takes on a godly frame of mind, which result in zealous actions for the Lord, right? And it's true. It's like when Christ uh, went into the, the temple and he saw the money changers, what happened? The scripture says in John that Christ, this is Jesus, the compassionate, loving Lord, right? He made a scourge of cords and <clears throat> it says he drove them all out of the temple. Strong words. With all the sheep and the oxen. And what, is it else, what else does it say? He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. That's anger. That's righteous anger. That's zeal for the Lord. He says later on, zeal for the Lord's house has eaten me up. It's consumed me. Why? He was zealous for God because he knew God. And he knew that God hated this stuff. So Mo, this is why Moses shattered the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and Because Moses was zealous for the glory of God. Moses loved what God loved, and Moses hated what God hated because he had been in the presence of God many times. He knew God intimately, and he wanted to know him even more. Do we, do we lo love what God loves? I mean, I have to ask myself that question often. I, I don't think I, I really do all, all the time. Do we love his glory and obeying his commands? Do we hate the things that he hates, namely sin, idolatry, you know what God says in his word about many things. Are we spending adequate time with him like Moses did? Although we won't have that 
the intimacy Moses had. Nevertheless, we can spend time with God to get to know him, meditating on his word, knowing that what his word says, so our mindset becomes like God, right? And then that renewed mindset will result in zealous actions. And so the broken tablets reveal the zeal of Moses. But the broken tablets also reveal the grace of God. It's interesting that, you know, when you read chapter 34, verse 1, I know we're flipping back and forth here, but when you read these words, the instructions to Moses, cut out for yourself two tablets of stones like the former ones, you kind of pass over them quickly, right? Well, let me get through this to get to the good part where God reveals himself to Moses. But don't pass over those words too quickly because they teach us something about the nature of God. We said earlier that the commandments that Moses broke, Moses broke were the writing of God, right? The tablets were of God. And Moses broke them when he saw the idolatry. God had every right at that point and said this too to Moses. Let me destroy this nation. And <clears throat> starting with you, I'll make a new nation, a greater nation than Israel was. And Moses said, Lord, don't, don't do that, please. He could have done that. He could have destroyed them because they were sinful. But God knows something about us. He knows we're just dust. He knows we're sinful. And he's long-suffering with us, right? He knows every intent of the thoughts of man's hearts is evil, only, only evil continually. Even the redeemed struggle with sin. He knows this information. So he doesn't excuse our sin, but he's gracious toward us. What did Paul say? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, right? God's a God of grace. So this Israel didn't thwart the plan of God when they committed idolatry. It gave God an opportunity to show his wondrous grace. Why did God have Moses make new tablets? Because of grace. Why did God put up with Israel's rebellion and rejection of him for all these centuries? Because of grace. Why does God put up with our foolishness? Because of grace, right? Grace of God. And we need to be humbled by this and grateful for the continued grace of God in our lives. Outside of that, we're, we're done. We're done for. So we see the instructions the Lord gave Moses concerning the broken tablets. But Moses is also instructed concerning the approaching encounter with God, verses 2 and 3. It says here in chapter 34, So be ready, God says, by morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man <clears throat> be seen, any, seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. And so he gives them some instructions here about the approaching encounter, the particulars regarding it. Verse 2 states the time and place. And he, he was to meet God. The time is morning. It says it twice here. Come to me in the morning. The place is Mount Sinai. And so he gives him the location. And that's where God has met Moses before on Mount Sinai. That's over and over again in Exodus. Moses was to present himself to the Lord. Literally, he was to stand or station himself before the Lord, ready to receive the instructions that God had for him, ready to listen and respond to the Lord. There was a restriction placed upon Moses. No one was allowed to come with him, not Joshua, not Aaron, not any of the elders as before. No one could come with him, not, even, not any animals. This was an encounter between one man and God, Moses and God, not even uh, uh, no one, not even animal, an animal could not even graze in front of the mountain, it says. Moses, once again, is standing on holy ground before God, before a holy God, just like he did in the burning bush. And I know that in our day, when, you know, Christ has made it available for us to enter into God's presence without all the sacrifices and all that, that we kind of are flippant in our approach to God. But we should always consider uh, that 
God is holy, and we can't enter his presence rapidly, or not rapidly, but with irreverence. And, and Moses is being prepared here to enter his presence with reverence. So we need to have reverence for God, right? And so Moses is instructed in that. But also Moses is obedient to the instructions he received. Verse 4, so he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. He did as the Lord commanded him, it says here. That's the key right there, as the Lord had commanded him. He cut two stone tablets out, just like the former ones. Now, that took some effort. I don't know how much. He had to chisel out with the stone of the tablets and shaped them, in the, uh, shaped them into that form. But the point is, regardless of the effort involved, and it may have been a lot, I don't know. Nevertheless, he obeyed the simple command to do it, and he did it. The Lord said, rise up early in the morning, Moses, come meet me early. <clears throat> Moses rose up early and met the Lord. What's the point? Moses obeyed God even in the seemingly mundane matters. He obeyed God. He did every little detail. He does this all the time throughout the Pentateuch. He's always obeying God in all these little details. While Israel is not, Israel, unlike Moses, is always disobeying God. Moses is always obeying God. You remember the, uh, the story of Naaman the leper? Naaman in 2 Kings 5, the guy who was the the uh, uh, captain of the army of Aram and an important official and he had leprosy and he wanted to be healed he heard about the prophecy of the prophet uh, Elisha over in Israel and he wanted Israel he wanted Elisha to heal him Elisha comes over and tells his servant look go tell uh, go tell Naaman to dip in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be healed <laughs> well this is an important official and this guy thought Elijah was going to come over to him directly and talk to him personally and, and heal him. In fact, he says to his servant, the servant says, go wash into Jordan seven times. And he complains about the muddy river Jordan, how, me how messy and muddy it is. Why do I want to? I'm an official here. Why am I going to wash into Jordan River, that nasty river? There's, more, there's better rivers in our country than over there. Why would I want to do that for? I thought that, he says, I thought that Elijah was going to come over here in my presence. He says this. Wave his hand in the air over the place and call upon the name of the Lord and, and heal me. And I was going to be cured. Like a faith healer, it sounds like almost. And his servant says to him, very interesting statement. His servant says to Naaman, he says, you know, if the prophet Elisha would have told you to do some great thing, he says the word some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more this simple command? And he, he does it and gets, and gets cured of his leprosy. But living for God usually means obeying him in the mundane matters of day-by-day -day experience. Usually not the great thing that's happening. It's something mundane. And like Moses, we should be obedient in all things, right? He was obedient to the Lord, did as the Lord commanded him. And Moses customarily did as the Lord commanded him. Not only here, it was a pattern of his life, except for Numbers 20 where he was told to strike the right rock once, or not strike it, but speak to it. Water would come out. He strikes it twice and blows it big time. But... As the general rule of his life, he obeyed God, right, unlike Israel. Israel, by the way, if they weren't rebelling against God-ordained authority, they were complaining about the food they were eating, right, or the water they weren't drinking, or the good old days back in Egypt and how they had good times back in Egypt, which they really did not. It's called the house of slavery. But they were always complaining, not obeying God, but Moses did obey God. And a true believer customarily obeys God, not perfect. Certainly not perfect. We have sins to deal with that we have to confess to God. But do we obey God as a pattern of our lives? Even in the mundane matters of life, 
even if it takes great effort, like maybe chiseling out stone like Moses had to do? Do we obey him in the mundane matters of life? Customary obedience marked the life of Moses. So we see in verse 4, in the first four verses, the preparation for the Lord's glory. Then in verses 5 to 7, the second stage, <clears throat> we see the revelation of the Lord's glory. The revelation of the Lord's glory. The Lord actually reveals himself to Moses. Verse 5 talks about the Lord's descension. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. That's a great statement. The Lord comes down to Moses' level here, it says. And no man could, not even Moses, as great as he was, as close as he was to God, could rise to the level of God, right? God had to condescend to come down to Moses' level. And that happened in a similar way in Exodus 19 when the Lord met Moses on Mount Sinai there. But does this mean that God physically descended down to his level? Is that what it means? Well, I like the explanation of John Calvin, and I know we quote Calvin a lot, but he's a pretty cool guy, so I'm going to quote him again. Listen to this. About this passage, the descent of God, which is here recorded, indicates no change of place as if God, who fills heaven and earth and whose vastness, using some words that he doesn't use here, whose vastness is universally spread, God's everywhere present at once, in other words, he didn't alter his position, God didn't alter his position, but it has reference to the perceptions of men. In other words, in order for us to understand God's condescension to Moses, he words it this way, Calvin says. God didn't come down to Moses physically. He's everywhere present at once, but it, it helps us to understand God condescended to Moses' level. He's the, cre the creator, right? We're the creature. He's the one that's exalted. We're the one that's lowly and helpless. He has to come down to our level, right? He has to descend to our level, like Christ, who came to earth, who left heaven's glory and gave up all that that he could have had to become a man and become like a slave, it says in Philippians 2. That's what the Lord did for us. And so the Lord's descension is in verse 5, and then the Lord's proclamation in verses second half of verse 5 through verse 7. Uh, first of all, you see here the identity of the one proclaiming. You might think that's strange, but you'll see in a second here. Look at chapter uh, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there and stood there with them as he called upon the name of the Lord. That phrase, as he called upon the name of the Lord, is there's some questions about as to who the identity of the speaker is. Is it Moses or is it the Lord? Who's calling upon the name of the Lord? Is the Lord calling upon his own name? Or is Moses calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, the NASB kind of does not do a wonderful job on this phrase, unfortunately. Uh, it should be better that as he called or proclaimed with the name of Yahweh or in the name of Yahweh. So who is it? Moses or God talking? Well, look back at chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said to God, I pray you show me your glory. Verse 19. He said, I myself, God's answering, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord promises, I'm going to proclaim my own name to you, Moses. Now look at chapter 34, verse 6. <clears throat> then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Who's doing the proclaiming here? Who's the identity of the speaker in verse 5, the end of verse 5? It's the Lord. He is calling out in the name of the Lord or in the name of Yahweh or with the name of the Lord. 
It's not calling upon the name of the Lord, technically. So this is the Lord who is identified here. And this phrase in verse 5, he called in the name of the Lord, anticipates the actual proclamation that takes place in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, then, Yah- then the Lord, Yahweh is the word, Yahweh, the Lord, passed by in front of him. What does that pass by in front of him mean? Well, go back to chapter 33, verse 19. It says there, <clears throat> and let's read these verses 19 to 23. The Lord says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. There it is again. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom <clears throat> I will be gracious. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so the Lord would make all his goodness to pass before Moses. Uh, Walter Kaiser says this, by his goodness is meant his whole character and nature. God's whole character and nature would pass before Moses. By the way, in this section, God's also seen as sovereign, right? Because he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'm going to show compassion on whom I'm going to show compassion. It's up to God, ultimately, whom he shows compassion or mercy to, right? That's what it says here in this verse. And no man can counsel on him, on his actions, on who he should show mercy to. He says, here, he says, I'll do what I do according to my will. In addition here, Moses is, is hidden from the reality of God's full presence, right? He says, I'm going to hide you, Moses. He talks about hiding him on the cleft of the rock and covering him with his hand until he's passed by. And, and you know what? If Moses experienced the full glory of God, what would happen to him? <laughs> Probably explode. I mean, he'd be overwhelmed by it. There's no way that any of us, any man, not even Moses, could experience the full, full-on glory of God. It's just impossible. We wouldn't be able to stand up to that. No way. We'd die, I'm sure. We'd, we'd be blown away. But you see that there's words here that help us to understand God in a way we can, we can get it. He's spoken of, of as having a face, as having a back, as having a hand. And that's, we know that God is spirit, right? He doesn't have physical characteristics like we do. It just helps to understand God. He's spirit. And, and nobody can see God and live. I mean, even though Moses was familiar with him, he was not allowed to see God in his full glory, as we've said. Uh, it's just too much. But we also know when Christ came, in John 1.18, it says no man can see God and live, but Christ, it says there, was the, was the exposition of God, the explanation of God, the interpretation of God. Well, everything Christ was, God was. When people saw Jesus on earth, they saw God. They saw everything that God was in human flesh. And so the Lord here is the one who's doing the proclaiming. And then the content of the, pro- of the proclamation, verse 6b, the content of the proclamation. What is this proclamation of the Lord all about? Well, in verses 6 and 7, he tells us. We, we know that uh, Yahweh, or the Lord, I d- is the one doing the proclaiming. And what does he say about himself? Like we talked about self-evaluation earlier. God's evaluating himself. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. He talks about his name first. Look at verse 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Yahweh. 
hell with the other words. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. But Martin Luther calls this right here, I love this quote. Martin Luther calls this the sermon on the name of the Lord. Now, I wish, instead of me doing this, that Martin Luther was standing here preaching on the sermon on the name of the Lord. That'd be great. But a person's name was important then. It was associated with his character and his reputation. We talked about the word glory earlier and the idea of a person with a weighty reputation. God's reputation is embodied in his name. This is all that he represents is in his name. And when Moses requested to see God's uh, glory, he didn't see some vision. He heard what God said about himself. And he hears it here in these, in these verses. This is the best theology proper lesson ever taught. Theology proper is the study of God, God's attributes. This is the best lesson ever on the subject of theology proper. God's talking about theology. He's talking about himself here. And he starts off by proclaiming his name, the Lord's name, Yahweh, Yahweh God. It's the only place in the Hebrew Bible where this exact phrase occurs. There's a similar phrase in Isaiah, but this is the only place this exactly occurs. Now, what's strange is this. Listen to this. Some of you, you've heard about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. I'm only bringing this up to, to show something here. That translation, Stephen will be glad to know, does not translate this, the Lord, the Lord God. I don't know why. It translates it, the Lord God, and leaves out one of the Lord's. A guy named Laney says that apparently the second usage was redundant to those guys that translated it. You mean to tell me? I looked it up, and I saw it, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me, right? Seriously? He didn't translate the word Lord twice when it says it there in the text? It's, it, it reminds me of, of modern-day translators, how they don't translate everything in the Bible all the time. And I, that's what I thought of, Ryan, when I first when I looked at that. But it's very important. Don't leave it out because you think it's redundant. That's what some modern translators do today. Oh, it's redundant. We're leaving that out. No, it's the scripture. Last time I checked, why are you leaving it out for? So uh, it's important. The repeated name of Yahweh is there to emphasize his name. I'm Yahweh, Yahweh. Emphasize the actuality of his presence. What do we think of when we hear that? Automatically, Exodus 3.14. God says, I am who I am, right? He's a self-existent one, not dependent on anybody or anything. He's God alone, completely sufficient and capable in, in, in and of himself, right? And then that word God there, is it, that particular term is a generic term for God. It could be any God, actually. But when it's coupled with the word Yahweh, Yahweh God, now it's talking about the living and true God. He says, I am Yahweh God. Yahweh, God, in case you didn't get it the first time, I'm the living and true God. That's his name. And then his attributes, he talks about who he is and, and his qualities, right? Uh, he says, I'm the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousand, thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now this verse, these verses right here are absolutely foundational to the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see this again and again, Omar, right? You're going to see this again and again. And Omar, Omar's an Old Testament scholar now, by the way, for real. And uh, these, there are many references that refer back to, 
to this right here. You'll see it over and over again. You'll see little glimpses of this, little phrases in the Old Testament about God being gracious and compassionate and so on. Like, for example, Numbers 14, 18. Moses repeats the essence of this very verse back to God. Lord, you're the God of compassion and you're gracious and so on. Can you pardon our people? Again, always coming for forgiveness, right? Psalms 103, 8. David quotes some of this, these verses right here to God. And my favorite one of all is Jonah. There is nothing better than this verse. Jonah 4, 2. When, Jonah, when Nineveh repented of their sin, Jonah says Did, to the Lord, he says, didn't I tell you this when I was in my own country in Israel before you called me on this short-term mission trip? Didn't I tell you this, that this was going to happen? Why? Because I knew, he says, that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I knew it. I told you this was going to happen. You're going to let these guys you know, repent of their sin. And he was upset about it. He didn't want that. But that, once again, it shows that it goes back to these verses here. And there's many other instances of this in the Bible. And, and little phrases here and there talk about this. So let's, let's examine each one of these attributes. <clears throat> and I've divided this, by the way. I've given this a twofold division, um, as we're going to see here. First of all, we're going to talk about God being a God of grace and then a God of justice. First of all, a God of grace. He's, it says here he's compassionate in verse 6. Kind of like a mother's love for a child. She loves her child. She, uh, she sees his weaknesses. I, was, I see Ezekiel over there, and I see Elena today, last few days, and it's just great having them around. And, and you can see how innocent, how weak they are, how needy they are. They, they're totally, I'm just struck by their total, absolute dependence on people. They can do nothing for themselves at all. That's how we are to God. And, and a mother will watch over her child and understand the child's needs and weaknesses. And regardless of how the child uh, reacts, even un ungratefulness, the mother loves the child, right? It's the love, the idea of a love of, of superior being to an inferior being. A guy named Girdlestone, throw that away, that name. He says this, it is a deep and tender feeling such as is aroused by the sight of weakness or suffering in those that are dear to us or need our help. You see someone suffering? Your heart goes out to them. I want to help them. That's the idea of compassion in here. The term is also associated with God's sovereign choice. What does it say in Exodus 33, 19? I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Once again, sovereignty of God. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the idea is also linked with the faithfulness, the faithfulness of God and also the forgiveness of God in different verses. And it's also linked with the future blessings of Israel. For example, Isaiah 54, 7, God says of Israel, For a brief moment... I forsook you, Israel, but with great compassion, I will gather you. The compassion of God. It's a great thought for us to meditate on, right? God's compassion. He knows our weaknesses. He sees us. He sees our nature. But he's gentle and full of sympathy, sympathy towards us anyway. Compassionate God. And then he's gracious, it says in verse 6. That's paired with compassionate. He's compassionate and gracious, it says. That word is used 13 times in the Old Testament. Eleven times in, in combination with that word, compassionate. It is a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has a need. Someone has a need, you try to meet that need. God does that for us. And this is up to, entirely up to God's discretion. Why? Because in Exodus 33, 19, it says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Once again. And like the companion term compassionate, the Lord is gracious because he's gracious, he's able to be favorable to the afflicted and to the suffering. 
shows favor. We who receive God's grace are undeserving of it, right? We know we're undeserving of it, but he shows us grace anyway. And we can't fully comprehend the grace of God. If we, if we show favor to someone, it's usually because there's an ulterior motive in mind. Maybe they can help us some way. Or maybe there's an angle we're working. But not with God. He doesn't have any ulterior motive. And we, all we got to do is look at our own lives to see that, right? He saved us by his grace from our sins, brought us to faith in Christ. So he's gracious. Also, it says he's slow to anger. He has every right to be angry with people due to the sin, their sin and rebellion. But though this is true, he is not short-tempered. He's not like man who loses his temper, right, and blows up. I've had enough. I, blow, I, I can't take it anymore. And you blow up. You get mad, frustrated. And all of you have heard probably by now that the Hebrew term here where it says slow, slow to anger is, is literally long of nose. Long of nose. What are, you say, what are you saying? Well, it's like a person gets mad, his nostrils flare up, his face gets red, and he gets anger, angry. That's the term right here. We talk of people being hot with anger, and that's, that's what the term means. God is not like that. He doesn't get like that. If he gets like that, it's been a long time coming, and you know it's righteous anger. But he's not like us. He's slow to anger. He's extremely patient. He's reluctant to, to, to punish people, even when they're in open rebellion. You see it again and again in the Bible, right? Reluctant to do that. People say foolish things like, if there's a God, let him strike me dead right now. But what they don't understand is God is <laughs> slow to anger with those people. Even though they're shaking their fist in the face of God, he's giving them an opportunity to respond to him. He's not going to wait forever, but he, does, he doesn't condone sin, but he does is slow to anger. And then it talks about God being abounding in loving kindness and truth. He abounds in these qualities. Literally, the word is much. He's much in loving kindness and truth. There's no limits for this for the Lord. The word loving kindness, famous word, means steadfast love or loyal love or unfailing love. You know, God has established his covenant with Israel, and he's always loyal to them, even though they reject him constantly, uh, repeatedly. He's still loyal to them. And this is undeserved, this, this, this loyal love, this loving kindness. You know, even though we turn our back on God, he doesn't turn our back, his back on us. And not only does he abound in loving kindness, but also truth, which is also going to be translated faithfulness. It's got to do with firmness or dependability. The term is applied to both to God and his word, by the way. Uh, we can trust God. We can trust his word, right? In Christ, in God, and his word, we have a sure anchor for our soul. So God is abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then it says he keeps loving Kindness for thousands. It's the same word loving kindness used, in, used earlier. Thousands could refer to thousands of generations. God extends his loyal love to thousands of generations. Uh, he's, he keeps his covenant and guards his covenant that he's committed to his people. It says in uh, verse, uh, verse 7, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Forgives every, he forgives us. The word forgive means to carry away or lift up. And he, he lifts up our sin. Walter Kaiser once again says, sin can be forgiven and forgotten because it is taken up and carried away by God. What is it that God forgives? Three terms are used here, right? First term is iniquity. It means to be on a path and, and to veer off that path in a crooked way. You get off the path that you're on, the righteous path, and go the wrong direction. He forgives that. Transgression is a rebellion against God's authority. You just rise up in rebellion against him. If you're repentant, he forgives that. The word sin means to miss the way, miss the mark. 
It's failing to live up to God's standards. He forgives that too. So God forgives all these things. And only because of that can we be restored to his favor. He's the God of grace, right? He's also a God of justice. Uh, Kaiser says that God's grace is balanced. You know, it's, it's, it's grace and justice. Not only forgiving and gracious, but just as well. It says in verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Or literally, it means he will certainly, he will most certainly not acquit. Will not acquit those who are guilty of sin. God will not let the guilty off the hook. Those who refuse to repent will not be acquitted. You know, most people, if you talk to them, they think God is, should be loving, right? Oh, God's loving. He's kind. He's forgiving. But they don't think of him as being a God of judgment or justice. They don't want to hear about that, right? They want to be excused from their wrongdoing. But God is both. He hates sin. And though, and though he forgives, yet he will not acquit those who repent. He's a God of justice. And he visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Uh, it says, sin is not something that's isolated. It affects other people, right? It may affect our family. It may affect our friends. Our sin. It's ugly that way. It brings consequences. Consequences can be severe, right? Let me ask you a question. Does God punish the children for the sins committed by the parents? Does he punish the children for sins committed by the parents? That was a proverb quoted back in the ministry of the prophet Ezekiel. The people said this. The fathers <coughs> eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the father's our ancestors committed sins. Why are we paying for them now? That's not right. And God says, no, no, no. The soul that sins, it will die. I'm going to judge the people that sin. Those that sin are going to die. Those that don't, they're not going to be judged for that. However, there's one problem. The children experience the consequences of their parents' sins. If a parent, for example, you have an alcoholic father, and he... What could he do? He could abuse his wife and family, right? The kids now suffer physically. He could take the money and use it for drink and alcohol instead of putting food on the table. Now they suffer physically. They suffer spiritually because he certainly is not preaching the gospel to them or, or taking them to church to hear the gospel. Financial ruin, all kinds of things. And so God, the children can reap the consequences of sinful parents. There's many illustrations we could talk to, even to the third and fourth generations, a few generations. So we've got to be careful, right, parents, that we're, we're what we should be so our kids don't pay for that. The Lord is both a God of grace and a God of justice. I know you guys are getting tired out there in church land. Uh, but I'm reminded of the verse in Romans that says, Behold the goodness, both the goodness and severity of God. It's both, right? God is good, but he's also severe in his judgments. God's perfect in all his attributes. He acts according to his own nature. It's up to us to marvel at this and also to be, seek to be conformed to his image each day, right? That is the revelation of God's glory. And then lastly, the response to God's glory. The response to God's glory. We see it in verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, we see humble worship. First of all, verse 8, Moses made haste to bow down low toward the earth and worship. After witnessing the, the revelation of God, the self-revelation of the Lord, Moses could not stand any longer. He bowed down low in humble adoration to God. That wasn't a formal response because it was expected, but it was spontaneous because he was awestruck by God, right? Spontaneous worship. Often we worship because others expect us to, right? 
But if we get a glimpse of God's glory as revealed through his word, then we're able to have proper worship, transform worship, right? Same response happened to others in the Bible like Abraham and Joshua when they encountered God. Laney once again says this, good theology is the foundation for God-honoring worship. Good theology, which Moses just received in verses 6 and 7, the best theology in the world, right? Is the foundation for God-honoring worship. Not only was there humble worship, there was also a humble plea. In verse 9, Moses says, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, pardon our iniquity and our sins, and take us as your own possession. It's interesting in verse 9, it's our last verse, by the way. Moses addresses God as what? Yeah, Adonai, Adonai, Lord, right? He doesn't call him Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord just said in verse 6 and 7. He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, I don't know why. He doesn't say. I just think maybe he was afraid. <laughs> maybe he was so awestruck by God. He just was, was afraid to say the name, I guess. I, I don't know. But he, he, he prays for reassurance of God's presence once again. He prays for God's pardon. He, he tells the Lord, we want to be your possession, Lord. And he confesses the stubbornness of the people. And we know that God answered his prayer because we see the following chapters through Exodus that God's still working with the people of Israel. So Moses responds properly to the revelation of the Lord, right? Humble worship, reverent worship, prayer for God's blessing. And so when Moses requested in verse uh, chapter 33, 18, Lord, show me your glory, I don't know what he was expecting. I have no idea what was in his mind. But what he got was a proclamation from the Lord about who the Lord was. The Lord described who he was. It's the same thing we can get if we read the Bible, right? Same thing we can get that Moses got. Lord is gracious, he's long-suffering, he's compassionate, he's committed to his people with loyal love, he's forgiving. And while we're undeserving, he's merciful to us. And yet, he's also a God of justice, meeting out judgment for unrepentant sinners when necessary, right? So D.A. Carson said the greatest need of the church in the West is to know God. That's the greatest need. Do we know God? Do we want to know God? Do we desire to know God? Is that the desire of our heart? Do we want to get to know him? Do we, like Moses did? Do we take time to know him? Trust me, I'm, this is convicting to me looking at this passage like it is to you guys. The passage, not me, is convicting. So as we come to the Lord, to know the Lord in a greater way, our response should be to humbly worship him and to humbly seek him, right, like Moses did. Think on this revelation of the Lord and allow it to draw us closer to him. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight and the time together. We just pray that uh, your word would have an impact on all of us, that uh, we would truly uh, desire to know you and all your, all your glory as, as much as we can bear. And we truly, truly desire that we would uh, walk with you and uh, be conformed to your image more and more every day. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.